Our second scripture reading today comes to us from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel, chapter 7. You can find it in your Pew Bible on page 1,383. Daniel, chapter 7, page 1,383. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of, one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit, and the vision that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, 
forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with, with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also want to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell and the, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns and ten kings who, who will come from this kingdom after them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High God. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. These are the words of the Ancient of Days. May they bring hope and comfort to those who are in times of trouble. For over five years now, war, war has torn through Syria, leaving behind a trail of devastation. ISIS has been wreaking havoc upon the nation, destroying churches, killing Christian men, and kidnapping Christian women. Multitudes have left their homeland, fleeing for safety. Yet not all have chosen to run. Reverend Ibrahim Nasir continues to shepherd his people in Aleppo. His church building was bombed in 2012, yet the congregation, they continued to meet in an abandoned apartment with no electricity. And though Abraham sees people all around him dying on a daily basis, because of his love for his people, he chooses to stay. If God is in control, then why does he allow such evil to exist? This is a question that challenges the faith of many. We believe God to be good and all-powerful, yet our experience tells us something different. We come to a different conclusion. Either God is not as good as we think he is, or he is not as powerful as we once thought. <coughs> the evil of our world rears its ugly head, and we are left wondering, 
Where is God? One of the ways that God brings clarity to the problem of evil is what is known as apocalyptic writing. Apocalypse, it means revelation. And this kind of writing can be found not only in the Old Testament prophets, but also in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, and of course in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. It is a style of writing that was used by many in the ancient Near East. And most of these were very doom and gloom, describing an end-of-the-world type of vision. God, on the other hand, he takes a slightly different approach to apocalyptic writing. Yes, there is that doom and gloom aspect, but the Bible, it overshadows such pessimism with a display of God's victory. A victory that ends human corruption and brings hope for those who are suffering under persecution. You see, apocalyptic writing, it, it tries to take a person's eyes off of his or her own worries on the, on the now to now, the day-by-day -day worries that they have, and it lifts it up to a heavenly perspective. They don't see that day-to-day -day evil in front of them. Instead, they look at the wickedness of the spiritual forces that, that send that havoc our way. It's, it's less about a personal story of rescue and focuses more on the grand story, an epic tale, the, the saving of the, the three from the fiery furnace or the saving of Daniel from the lion's den. That's, that's fine for Daniel and his friends. But what about those who don't see rescue this side of eternity? Apocalyptic writing is for them. Of course, there's a question of proper interpretation. How are we to understand such difficult texts? What are the rules, if there are any rules? In many ways, this, this genre of writing is similar to prophetic writing. They both deal with God's judgment and his plan of salvation. Yet, prophetic writing tends to get straight to the point. But what we see here in the second half of the book of Daniel, it, it beats around the bush. It, it's very hard to comprehend what's going on. You see, apocalyptic writing, it also shares a kindred spirit with poetry. Both use rich metaphors and imagery to drive home the points they are making. And this liberal use of word pictures creates a dilemma for those of us who are analytical in our thinking. While it speaks to us accurately, it is not precise. In other words, everything it states is true, but comprehending that truth can be difficult to determine. For it's hard to know when an analogy begins and when it ends. Still, this imagery, it can provoke strong feelings and emotions for the reader. It's fantastic. It's otherworldly. And the language is meant to maintain a sense of mystery. You see, there are certain things that are taking place in the spiritual realm that are difficult for, for us to wrap our minds around. 
even someone like Daniel, who was gifted with great knowledge and great wisdom, he is perplexed and troubled by the visions that he sees. And we, in the 21st century, we live in America. We have been separated by these visions, by time, by space, and by culture. So these things are even more challenging for us today than they were for Daniel and his friends. We have to cross an ocean and then a continent. And then we need to time travel back 2,600 years into the past and learn about ancient Jewish and Babylonian and Persian cultures to try to grasp these things. Needless to say, we have our work cut out for us. Well, finally, we, we must understand that apocalyptic writing has this telescoping effect as well. What I, what I mean by that is it will focus on a certain period of history, but then it'll jump the reader forward to the end of history as well, where we see the final judgment of God. We see not only the earthly outcomes of these events, but the final heavenly outcomes as well. All that being said, God did give us apocalyptic writing for a purpose. Namely, to encourage his suffering saints to persevere in the faith. It begins to reconcile the problem of evil. If God is in control, then why do we see such evil things taking place in our world? This leads us to the second half of the book of Daniel beginning with chapter 7. My goal will be to take you through this imagery, try to explain what I can, and then go back and figure out what does this mean for us today. Are you ready? Yeah? Okay. In verse 1, uh, we, we read about that it is the first year of King Belshazzar's reign. So we're actually traveling back in time from the end Daniel chapter 6, when Darius and the Persians were in control of Babylon. Chronically speaking, this vision should be placed somewhere between chapter 4, when God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and chapter 5, when the hand of God wrote upon the wall, and Darius the Mede was handed over the kingdom of Babylon. It's roughly the year 549 B.C., it's the same time when Cyrus the Great, the Persian, defeated Astyages, the Median ruler. And this sets the stage for Cyrus to become a world power. Hence, this dream is sent to Daniel as God's warning of things that are to come. Let's look into this vision some more. Look with me at verse 2. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Daniel is transported to the shore of the ocean. It's turbulent and chaotic. The winds are beating violently, and the waters are in upheaval, trying to break past their borders. It's a place of defiance against God's created order. We read about this in Genesis 1, 
when God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry ground appear. God had set his limits to the sea. But in this vision, these boundaries are being pushed. And in the midst of this chaos, Daniel sees four great beasts coming out of the sea. Each one different from the next. Each one represents a mighty kingdom. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. Most scholars would agree that this first beast represents Babylon. The kingdom that has the strength of a lion and the majesty of an eagle. Both are proud animals sitting atop the food chain. But this proud beast would be humbled. Its wings would be torn off and it's morphed into a man. It's given a man's heart. One cannot help but think of Nebuchadnezzar in this imagery and how God had brought him so low. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. This second kingdom is represented by only one kind of animal. Yet this beast is deformed. Its strength resides on one side of its body. It's told to get up and eat its fill of flesh. You see, this kingdom, it would overpower and conquer other countries with ease. Does it represent the Medes and the Persians? Possibly. Or there's no way to know for certain. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. This time, we don't just see, we don't just see a hybrid, but we see a deformity as well. It's a mix between a leopard and a bird, and it has four wings and four heads. Speed is the element that it's focused on with this animal. A leopard with four wings had to be awfully fast. Yet the four heads suggest that that there's no one ruler in control of this kingdom. It is split by factions. For these reasons, many believe that this beast represents the kingdom of Greece. For Alexander the Great, he swiftly conquered the known world. Yet his reign was short, and after his death, the empire split. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. 
This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. This last beast is different from all the others. It's not represented by any known animal. And metallic elements from the earth are mixed into its anatomy. In many ways, it is the most rebellious of the four, all of which defy the created order. It's more repulsive and it's more disorderly than the other three. This beast is also the hardest to pin down to any particular kingdom. Some suggest that it's the aftermath of the Grecian split during the time of Antiochus Epiphany. And as we read in Daniel further, we will see why many scholars think this. Others think that it represents the kingdom of Rome. Still some suggest that it's a future kingdom that has not yet come on the scene. Yet there are some who like to hedge their bets, and they say, oh, this fourth beast, it represents a multitude of kingdoms throughout history. Can't lose on that one, right? Whatever the case, this last creature is distinguished by its horns, a mark of pride and arrogance in an animal. And there is one horn in particular that uproots three of the other horns. It has the eyes of, the man, of a man, and it speaks boastful words from its mouth. And this horn would haunt Daniel's mind. Four beasts representing four kingdoms of men, each in rebellion to God's created order. This vision at the sea is an anticipation of evil to come. Yet the scene changes, and Daniel's eyes now shift to a courtroom setting. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. This upheaval and chaos is now being overshadowed by the orderliness that comes from the throne room. The Ancient of Days takes his seat. The clothing of this eternal one is like pure snow displaying his righteousness. And his hair is white like wool, demonstrating his great wisdom. His fiery throne is ablaze, indicating both judgment and power. And that burning justice flows like a river. His authority is blatantly seen by the millions of angels that attend to him. The chaos of this world comes to a halt. The books are opened. An account of these four kingdoms has been recorded. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is missed. All has been written down. 
Each of these beasts are examined, though it is the fourth that receives the swiftest judgment. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. The judgment of God cannot be overturned. These rebellious kingdoms come to their fiery end. But that isn't the end of the vision. The doom of God is not the final story to be written. Verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Son of Man was a humble term used by the Jews to refer to a human being. It was a term taken by some of the prophets themselves, such as Daniel and Ezekiel. Yet this Son of Man is riding on the clouds of heaven, an attribute associated with God. When God had descended on Mount Sinai, it was in a thick cloud. And when he led Israel through the wilderness, he did so in a pillar of smoke. In Isaiah, God is a cloud rider that brings about his justice. And in the Psalms, we read these words. Psalm 104, verses 2 through 4. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. The brightness of God's glory is too great for men to behold, so he veils himself in the billows. In this Son of Man, we see both Humanity and deity. He is a humble king submitting to the authority of this ancient one. Yet he himself is given authority, glory, and sovereign power in a kingdom that will never end. Daniel gets a glimpse of his future hope. He gets a glimpse of the one who will take possession of of this kingdom that these four beasts abused and mishandled. Daniel gets a glimpse of Jesus. Well, Daniel gets confused as well by this vision. So he asks one of the angels to explain to him the riddle. He learns that these beasts are the kingdoms of men and that the holy ones of God, the saints, They will take possession of the kingdom forever. Then Daniel asks about this little horn with the boastful mouth 
that had waged war against God and his people. The angel revealed this to him in verse 23. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. The horn of this fourth beast is distinct because he takes pleasure in blaspheming God and persecuting the people of the Most High. And though the suffering he brings about lasts for a time, times, and half a time, it will come to an end. In other words, those who face this persecution, for them, time will seem to stand still. But God will bring it to a sudden and immediate end. He will cast judgment on this blasphemous little horn. And all that had belonged to this maniacal king will be handed over to the saints. Verse 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints. The people of the Most High his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Did you notice the switch there? The angel's description, he switches between the plural and the singular. Let me read it again. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This kingdom is handed over to Israel, yet Israel is now filtered down to a single individual. This son of man fulfills Israel's role as a light to the nations. In Christ, all of God's promises are met. This ends the vision for Daniel, and he is deeply troubled by it. He wrote it down, yet he kept it to himself. How does such a disturbing dream of Daniel's impact your life? What do power-hungry kings and blasphemous persecutors have to do with you. You live in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave. You are free to worship God in any way you choose. You do not face life-threatening challenges to your faith. Yet Christianity in the West is unprecedented. The religious liberty that exists in this country is not the norm. We must take that into consideration. In many ways, we are spoiled. 
You see, 70% of the world lives in a religiously repressive country. Some of these countries only have light restrictions, but in countries like North Korea or Sudan or in Syria, your brothers and sisters in Christ are heavily persecuted. Many are killed each year for their faith. Whether you believe these beasts from Daniel to be those ancient kingdoms from antiquity or not, it does not matter. There is a beast on the planet today, and it has made war with God and his people. The church in the West must wake up and care for God's people. Too often, we're, con we're concerned with our own well-being and with our own safety, and we forego the opportunity to help those who are suffering. We want our neighborhoods to be safe. We want our retirement funds to be full. And we don't look any further than 10 to 20 years down the road when we forget about the real future that lies ahead for us. In doing so, we have neglected the persecuted. We have abandoned our brothers and sisters who are in need. I, I look at someone like Reverend Ibrahim in Aleppo, and I, I am humbled. Here's a man who chooses to stay in a war zone for the sake of the gospel. A man who forgives his enemies, for he knows what fate awaits them if they do not repent. A man who understands that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. A man who looks far enough into the future, seeing the Son of Man riding on the clouds, that rider on the white horse whom we read about in our first scripture reading. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, the battle belongs to God. Jesus rides his cloud chariot into war for you. And he defeats your enemies. He overthrows the beasts of this world. And he deals out swift justice. He did this by going to Calvary. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them 
by the cross. Dear friends, the greatest beast in your life is inside of you. Your sin needs to be done away with. Only Jesus can defeat that beast. Trust in him. He comes to you in the clouds of heaven. To him is given all authority, glory, and power. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Will you bend your knee today? Let us pray. Ancient of days, you have granted us access into your royal courts. From your word, we have seen your righteousness and wisdom and justice. You put an end to the chaos of this world and restore order through your son. That son of man who rides upon the clouds of heaven, he is our hope. He is our future. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit. Guide us into all truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.